all you uh, spiritualists out there, <laughs> kind of spiritualists, not the, sure. not the Zen kind. <laughs> uh, actually, we're going to start out uh, with all you Enophiles. <laughs> Anyhow, you're listening, you're listening to Ann and Peter Hay. And cocktail, mavens, cocktail mavens are coming. Yeah, coming in too. And sauces with booze are coming after that. But let's start off with a, with a French-based wine company that decided that Oregon wines had a lot of promise. So they moved over here 30-some years ago. And Domaine Duran is still, still there. Yeah, it's a good job I did that because we're, yeah. we're now we're now starting. And wo- welcome to on the menu radio. Laurent Drouin, a winemaker from well, we're going to find out where. Uh, first, first of all, welcome, bonjour, bon chance. Bon, bonjour. <laughs> and bo- I like the bon chance, by the way. Yeah, I mean, bon chance for what? <laughs> We need, we need, we need, we need bonchons. We need a, a lot of bonchons. <laughs> a lot of bonchons. Uh, well, it must be wonderful being from a family that has accomplished so much in the wine industry. Um. Well, I have to say that 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 yes, and in the meantime, that's um, how can I say it? it's kind of a lot of responsibility and lots of weight on our shoulder. Being the um, being the the warrant of what has been done by our ancestors uh, Joseph and Maurice and my father who's still uh, working with us and uh, but yes uh, there is there is a lot of pride and uh, and 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 the pride can be found also for us in in I would say teaching or or educating the next generation so that one day they can take over and have the same responsibility. But it's a, it's great. It's a fabulous region, and we're 140 years old, so um, and 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 counting. Uh, but it's it's a great field. You you probably know the Perrin family from Bocastel, right? Oh yes, oh yes. They've, I mean, uh, they've, they've, yes. they've only been they've only been at it 600 years, I think they said. <laughs> exactly, and I'm not even counting the um, the Antinori generation, which I believe. The three sisters, Alicia, Albiera, and Allegra, I mean, are, it's 26 or 27 generation. We're only four, so we're just babies in the wine world. <laughs> now, now, let's, now let's, let's get this straight. I'm, I'm a, sh- a shade confused because your, your name is pretty obviously French. Drew, Drew, Drew uh, is, not, is, not, is not a surname in Oregon. Uh, no, absolutely not. It is purely French, and actually, it is from the uh, basically from Paris and, uh, and and Burgundy region. That's where you can find some wine with an H, which is kind of rare. Yeah, I thought the H so the, was. So the, so the family began planting vines several generations ago, and and in the Burgundy region. Yes, uh, my great grandfather Joseph Drouin. Uh, who yeah. founded the company in 1880 um, was uh, did not have any vineyard, did not plan anything actually. He was he okay. was a negociant. He was buying crop and moss from other growers, and he was aging and vin- vinifying and aging in his cellar uh, and winery. And uh, and 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 from there, uh, the company has grown. Um, 
the, he was very successful doing so. He had a style which was, you know, elegance and finesse and complexity. He wanted to highlight and to truly get the diversity of Burgundy. Uh, and it's my grandfather in 1919, Maurice Drouin, who took over. And um, he's, the birth of the domain happens with him. He's okay. the one in 1921 who purchased the first vineyard, which is one of our iconic wines today. It's called Bon Premier Cru Claude des Mouches. Um, so it's a bone wine. And um, so uh, from there, I mean, the, the, I mean, he was able to buy more and more vineyards and then continuing with my father and continuing with my generation. So that, that, that brings us today uh, with, with an... A domain which is 204 acres uh, spread out in the Chablis region, in the Côte de Nuit region, and in the Côte de Bonne region. Um, and pretty much 60% of what we own is Premier Cru and Grand Cru in Burgundy, which is kind of rare, actually. So, But we're talking about wines that were made in Oregon. <laughs> what, what's okay? Yeah, we're talking exclusively about wine there. I mean, with, with incredible, you know, the Premier Cru and Grand Cru are extraordinary and rare and unique wines from Burgundy, indeed. But, but, but what, 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 what was the driving force behind making a big, what most people would consider a big move for a French winemaker to go to the other coast of US. the United States of and the start United growing States. grapes there? Well, the story goes back to the 60s when my father started, tra Robert started traveling in the, in the United States and, and, and trying to educate more and more uh, consumers, American consumers, or expose them for the first time to the Burgundies. And during one of his trips, he's, he's been to Portland, Oregon, and he met a few people there, wine people that were producing some wines in their garage. So they're the real pioneers, the David Edlett, Adelsheim, Steve Carey, and uh, and, and all those, those extraordinary people over there, and passionate as well. And then in the late 70s, uh, David Lett, uh, named the Papa of Pinot, organized a tasting comparing Burgundy and Oregon, and uh, the Pinot Noir. And, and one of the wine was David Lett's wine, and uh, came out among the three, the first wines. I mean, some of the well-rated wine. And that was kind of a wake-up call for my father, and, and, and kind of a revelation, maybe more than a wake-up call. And in... in uh, he said there is some potential in those wines. There is definitely those, those growers are doing splendid work, and there is a soul in this wine. And uh, in the mid-'80s, uh, he was able to acquire 225 acres in the Willamette Valley, Dundee Hill to be precise, and, uh, and that was the birth of the domain in, in Oregon. My sister Veronique became the winemaker. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you to tell us about Dominique. Uh, not uh, Veronique. Veronique is um, Veronique is my sister, so she's the number two in the family, and she is uh, uh, she's been the winemaker since uh, vintage number one, which was 1988. Um, okay. And then, yep. So that was that was that's the reason my father went all the way to Oregon. Now the the interesting thing is, and and this a number of other winemakers that we've talked to in Oregon stress the, the importance of what we, of course, the French were calling terroir long before we were, but there are, there are some very unusual geologies and, as a result, soils that exist in the winemaking uh, 
areas in Oregon and in Willamette and the other valleys close by. Am I right there? Uh, yes, there is terroir in Oregon, indeed. I mean, it's um, basically it's a red crash basalt. Uh, it's volcanic soil uh, when, when it's limestone in Burgundy. But you have, you know, small hills, bigger ones, exposed east, south, east, north. Um, wind is blowing from one direction to another one, uh, cool, bringing some cooler climate uh, like in, in the Eola Amity, uh, Yam Hill. But we have to keep in mind that even though we have 600 years of, of, of wine studying and I would say serious winemaking in Burgundy, thanks to the Cistercians, the monks, um, Oregon, uh, at least for us, we have 34 years of experience, uh, and, and thanks to the, the, the pioneers, the real pioneers, uh, 50 years. Um, so we're still learning the various terroir, various uh, uh, exposure and typicity of Oregon. And that's what's exciting, is that, that we every year is, is bringing a new uh, kind of a knowledge that, that we learn about that. But there is a terroir. I mean, terroir in Burgundy is, is obviously dominating uh, every speech, every time we say something. But there is a terroir in Oregon, as in any wine region, by the way. Did you have the fires in Oregon, too, right? The, the fire lately? Yes. Yes, we, uh, we have had uh, some fire down in the valley, and uh, because of the wind, uh, it, it blows on the Willamette Valley, and um, it did affect some of the, uh, or I would say most of the vineyards, meaning, I mean, the smoke just went on the skin, and now we have to deal with that. Our harvests are over. We just finished yeah. harvesting about a week ago, and, um, and, and we're in the process of uh, evaluating what we're going to do with the wines. What do you do with the smoke on the skin? I mean... How do you well, we, 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 there is some the, the, the molecules during the fermentation might, you know, might, are in the juice because there is some skin contact, and of course there is a transfer from the skin into the into the juice itself, um, and and um, we're just finding ways to minimize or to eliminate those those smoky flavor or cold smoke ashes flavors. Um, I cannot tell you today precisely what we're going to do, but we're, we're working on trying to find, and we're working with labs as well as many others, and to see what we're going to do, because we don't want to release wine later. That would be uh, uh, not very pleasant because of those flavors. It's kind of a new thing for us. Um, yeah, it's, not, it's not the, 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 the best thing to work with or... or uh, in addition to an already uh, pre-damned uh, 2020, but that's the way it is, c'est la vie, and, and uh, we have to make the best out of it and, and, uh, and understand the process and maybe using some other molecules to remove those ones. So we don't have an answer right now. The, the wines we tasted now would not have any smoke taint. Yeah. Another no, 2017, look. Oh, yes. Well, 17, 18, 19, this is the first the first vintage ever, 2020, where we had that smoke on the valley, right, right. by the way. That, that, that before that, we never had it. So we didn't, didn't have to deal with that issue. Well, tell us about the characteristics of the wines that we tasted, that we sampled. Uh, the Domaine Droit, Oregon, actually, so as I said, it's a red crush basal. So naturally, the wines of Oregon have a little bit more density and, and, and deeper in color. Uh, nose is more on the spicy note. 
uh, and there is some kind of a nice softness in the tannins. And, uh, and, and so there is a lot of generosity in those wines. But the structure of the wine uh, carries it through the years. Uh, and the main difference with Burgundy is Burgundy, because of the limestone, uh, Burgundy is, has some earthy notes that you do not find in Oregon. Uh, and it's more uh, red fruit berries oriented in Burgundy versus Oregon. Uh, so definitely the texture is rounder, a little bit fuller, but there is a nice elegance in the expression of the darker fruits in, uh, in Oregon. Um, they have okay. potential for aging as well because we, the 1988 vintage is still alive today and tastes very much so like a burgundy one. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, and, and um, so it's great because it's a different expression and typicity thanks to the terroir itself of Oregon of, of, uh, comparing to, uh, compared to burgundy. When I, the Chablis, the 2018 Chablis, this is white, right? Yes. A, uh, Chablis is uh, so it's made of great, uh, Chardonnay grape variety, obviously, because all the whites in Burgundy, that's what it is. And it's the Chablis is the northern part of Burgundy. It's, it's between Paris and Beaune. It's kind of in the middle. Um, it's still dominated by limestone, but there is some... Um, uh, there is some um, chalk and um, fossilized oyster shells and uh, flintstone as well. So you do have that character into the wine. The Chablis AC is still fermented, absolutely no oak, no barrel age whatsoever. Uh, because That's you probably why I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> why, yeah. And, 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 belongs, to the, and, and yeah. belongs to the ABC school of white wine. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and, and it's anything but, anything but Chardonnay. Anything but Chardonnay. You know, that's interesting. If I may rebound on this, uh, on the eight, anything but, but anything but Chardonnay. In the um, in the 80s and 90s, and until recently, uh, the big trend was those big buttery oaky Chardonnay, yeah, and yeah. that was the characteristic of many wines that you could find outside of Burgundy. And there was a lot of pressure from either consumers or sommeliers or journalists, uh, obviously not all of them, but some of them, to push for more oak in the wines of Burgundy because that's what the market wanted. Right, and right, right. Burgundy as a region itself never gave up on its own typicity and said, no, we're, we're not... The, the typicity of the wines of Burgundy is that character and being able to find the differences between the Chassagne, between the Chablis, between a Meursault. And for that, oak is a tool to express the terroir and not an added flavor. And so you still have that diversity in the wines of Burgundy. And what's interesting is that once you bring a lot of oak, like they did in some other region, at some point people started to get tired of the same taste oh, yeah. that you have year right, right. after exactly. year after year. Exactly. And while well, I do summary all this by the diversity is, is what makes Burgundies unique. Uh, that's one thing. And I tell to the listener or to anybody who's telling me, you know, I'm not a Chardonnay drinker, I said, great, drink white Burgundy. So if you don't like Chardonnay, exactly. drink white Burgundy. Right. But shot and and but they know they said but Burgundy is white shot is Chardonnay I said yes it is but it's not Chardonnay it's a Meursault it's a Chablis it's it a is. Chassagne and that's what makes Burgundy unique so we never gave up 
30, 40 years ago on the trend to produce more bigger and oakier and vanilla and new flavors? No. And the fact that Burgundy has gained a lot of respect is that because we didn't go with the wind and we stick to the terroir. No, I, ma- I managed to find a way to handle my wife's taste by by <laughs> ser- by, by serving no no oaked Chardonnays, prin- <laughs> prin- principally from Oregon and Western of all places, Western Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but if if I may add one more thing, oh, going sure. to extreme is not a it's not a good thing. So too much oak is not a good thing. Uh, a good thing, but you take some of the wines from Burgundy, some of the appellations from Burgundy, and if you remove the oak completely, you don't do any barrel age. That's not going to be good either. It's mm-hmm. all about the balance. Balance. I was just going to say it's balance. Now, where, do, where does Viognier fit in? Oh, there is no Viognier in Burgundy whatsoever. Okay, so 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 Viognier is a white group. It's a white wine, and what's there's there's one terroir that that is exclusively Viognier. Yeah, Viognier is basically uh, in the Rhone Valley, is in in the northern right. Uh, right. Rhone, and uh, basically uh, places like Condrieu, for example. That's it. The funny, funny thing is, you, pro- you probably know Dr. Campbell from El uh, I know. I, I, yeah. We, we, were, we were once upon a time, we were part of his wine club until we were discharged by the wine club because they couldn't <laughs> ship to Pennsylvania. So we got fired. But, but, he, but he, he, he planted like just a, just a few rows of Viognier and... Uh, it, it, it was magnificent. I I bought several percentage points of their entire vintage of Viognier when they made it, and I and I served I served it to our wine tasting group, and no one got it right. There, there were some clever clever spotters of wine uh, who got everything else, but they could not could not allow for the fact that Elko Viognier wasn't Condria. <laughs> Ah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, very, 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 very different than, than, than the Chardonnay from Burgundy. I mean, the expression, oh, no, the acidity, just, the crispiness, yeah. I thought it was just a, a funny story. The other funny story, and, I, <laughs> yes, and, and, yes, and this, this was this was the young young Mr. Campbell who told us this. He said when, when his father wanted to, to decided he, he wanted to have a vineyard in Oregon, he talked to his wife about it, and his wife said to him, now, Dr. Campbell, just exactly how many Oregon Pinot Noirs have you ever sampled? <laughs> and, and the answer was none. There we go. Zero. And there we have it, yeah. Um, it, you know, we keep getting um, different reports, like uh, this whole issue of climate change. I mean, this is not as, as extreme as smoke damage, but um, climate change has certainly... They predicted it was going to seriously affect Burgundy, um, and and um, yet the reports from this year's um, vintage are very good. Uh, what about climate yeah. change in Oregon? Yeah, well, climate. Uh, you're talking about climate change overall. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's we get all these reports about dire dire predictions of um, climate change 
killing off whole vintages and all kinds of things. Um, but you, you, what's your experience with it? Well, you know, climate change, the, the, we have to keep, there is climate change. I mean, it is, the, 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 it's a fact. And, and, and we can see it on, you know, the date of picking is getting, uh, uh, is getting closer to August. And this year, it was no exception uh, in Burgundy. Uh, Oregon, there is huge variation. We started harvesting like late September uh, when Burgundy, we harvested August the 20th as the date uh, of, of picking, the first date of picking. Uh, but, but it is impacting the overall, I would say, typicity of the wine. But in the meantime, Mother Nature is resilient. Mother Nature has an incredible capacity of adapting. And when I say Mother Nature, I'm talking about the vine. And um, they can adapt, they can change. You know, the, 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 the wines that were produced 40 years ago are obviously different than today. But the wines that were produced out of the vineyards, because the climate was different 140 years ago, the wines yeah. were different than 40 years ago. Um, but what's, what's more concerning for us is that even Mother Nature can adapt and a vine can adapt to the climate change. It's the pace or the speed of the changes. Um, so we have more and more extreme weather um, uh, over a period of 10 years. We had more hail or frost or heat waves in, in, in France or in Burgundy than maybe in the past 30 years. That's so for sure. To adapt, <laughs> Yeah, and to adapt and change, Mother Nature, uh, we, need, we need some help. So we've been able to offset or to compensate that climate change so far by working on the, ca the leaf canopy, I mean, the date of picking, um, working on the density. I mean, there is all kind of things that we can slightly fine-tune up to the point that we will not be able to offset. That's why, in the meantime, we're working with, with uh, INHA, National, Institut National de, de la Recherche Agronomique, and we're working on trying to find clones which would be more resistant to heat and naturally um, uh, reduce the, uh, the, the, the maturity of the, the maturity process or, or the pace of the maturity process. So uh, Burgundy, like any wine region in the world, is affected by climate change. As I say, Mother Nature is resilient. We know more. We learn every year how to handle those, either the heat or the extreme weather. Um, and and uh, I believe that we will, I'm, I'm pretty uh, optimistic, even though we still to be concerned and we have to continue to be very careful about not, not messing up with our planet like, like we do right now. Right. Well, right. yeah. <laughs> We're well, we slowing let's, down a lot of this change. Yeah. Before, before, yeah. before, 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 we, before we leave you, let's uh, go go down how people can get involved with their wine club, and and what wines you currently have available. Because well, actually, there's some the, Pinot Noirs yeah, as we, well as the ones we've talked about. Exactly. I mean, the Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay Arthur and the Rose Rock Pinot Noir from Oregon, which is another property we own in Iola. I mean, you can go on our website, which is domaindroinoregon.com, uh, and you can sign up to be part of the club, and then you'll have access. Um, there's some requirements, but you don't have access to the wine. Otherwise, you can, you can always walk in your retail store and ask for the retailer to bring the wines. We have distributions in 50 states. 
Uh, so we have distributors, so we're, our wine is accessible uh, through that as well. Even though they're not in the store, if you really want the wine, you can ask for it. Um, and then lastly, right. the, the only way to get the French wine is, is to go to a retailer because we have to have uh, uh, we have to go through uh, retailers in the States, so it's the three-tier system. Uh, but go on the wine club for the Oregon wine. It's it's very easy to do, and uh, and and check out the website, which has been completely redesigned lately, and uh, it's gorgeous. And you see splendid photos of the domain. Now, I have one other question before I sign off here. Is what? I can't hear you, Robin. Spell the letters of the website. Laura. Spell the website. The, spell oh, the letters. It, uh, it's domain Drouin. So domain at uh, D-O-M-A-I-N-E and Drouin is D-R-O-U-H-I-N dot com. I just didn't want people to get frustrated by, yeah. by not yeah, I, mean, I, I have this one question. I, I noticed that, um, that you were more than dabbling in larger format bottlings, and I was wondering what motivated that. Uh, you mean Drouin was moving to larger formats? And see, that's what I had on, I saw on the um, a print. Uh, print it out from the website. No, we're, no, 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 we're, we're not. Uh, we, uh, we do offer magnums and some Jeroboams as well, which are three liters. Uh, but no, we, we'll continue to do the, what we call the 750. Um, uh, we have not decided to go a large format exclusively or moving or increasing oh, no, no. it. There is, there is an increasing demand for sure. That's and what I wanted to can, know. Yeah. Is there a demand yeah, for there, larger? Yes, there is a demand for larger, and the, the reason for that is that people, and it's justified, uh, believe, and we agree with that, that the wine tend to age a little bit slower when they're in a larger format. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Something else I yep. didn't know. I, love, I, I figure <laughs> you have to learn something new every day. Oh, when it comes to wine and Burgundy in particular, absolutely. <laughs> Great. Well, well Laurent, it was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you've, and, had um, so, you've been such a great guest. I think you should allow yourself a glass of wine with lunch. <laughs> I certainly will, and I will do that right away then. But it's been a pleasure spending that, that, that time with you. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you, Laura. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. progress from those wonderful wines uh, to cocktails. So all of you cocktail mavens out there, uh, this is a beautiful book called Beautiful Booze. And I think you'll get some great ideas from Natalie Migliorini. Natalie Migliorini, you and, well, not with us, is your co-writer and partner, James Stevenson, because he's in his native Australia, but you're with us, and we're talking going to talk about your book, Beautiful Booze. Um, it, it's actually uh, uh, sprung from 
um, your website of that name, right? Right, yeah. I mean, I started Beautiful Booze about seven years ago. I kind of had a dream. I was, I had a dream that actually the name came to me and I um, wanted to do a cocktail blog and Beautiful Booze came to me like in the middle of the night and I just, I went online to see if it was available in terms <laughs> of websites. And it was available, and it kind of took off from there, and then I started the Instagram account. So I wanted this book to be an extension of the website and the account for my followers and other people that are interested in making cocktails at home. No. And you're not from Seattle. You're, you're, you're living there, but you're not from Seattle from your accent. No, I'm actually I'm from North Carolina. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, yeah. and um, you you've done so many different things. How did it all come down to cocktails? Well, um, it's interesting because in my previous life, as I like to refer to it, I um, did a lot of research in public health, and I worked at different universities. So my Last job, my last real job, I would like to say, I worked um, at the law school here in Seattle at University of Washington, and we worked off government grants. So when I when we lost all of our funding, I got laid off, and essentially, the whole time I was doing that job, and essentially my entire life, I was looking for a creative outlet, but I wasn't sure what that was, and so. I decided when I got laid off, I was going to take a couple months and do something that was more creative. And so I noticed that throughout the years, I would always have dinner parties and I would make a signature cocktail. And my friends were always like, we want this recipe or that recipe. And that's when I started Beautiful Booze um, to put up recipes for friends. And then I just got obsessed with cocktails, and it really took off in a way that I never <laughs> thought was possible. Well, they're so photogenic. I mean, I, I have my, my long-term um, long pharmacist retired and, and took to yeah. Instagram making up cocktails. And um, a, a former editor of mine, uh, she has what she calls her cocktail diary, and she posts all these things on Instagram. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And she looks for props. I mean, they're they're gorgeous. We we got a um a, a sample of um this vodka called Vavoon vodka. I don't know if you know it or not, but it yeah. comes in. Yeah, it comes in a, in a, a <laughs> naked lady, hand blown Italian blown bottle. So after we got we. We drank the vodka and gave her the bottle, so I'm waiting to see that come up on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very interesting how far, like, especially the U.S. and other countries have come with cocktail programs. I mean, in the U.S., compared to other countries, it's like a full-on obsession. Um, so over the last seven years, I have just seen, you know, more interest and now with the situation with the pandemic and people staying at home there's a real big demand for simple cocktails to make at home now well, the cocktail 
the cocktail, in many ways, the cocktail actually started here in America, right? Right. I mean, there's a museum of the American cocktail in New Orleans which celebrates that. I, I wish it would celebrate a variety of other things that were more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, New Orleans is a special place because there's so many different bars there, um, yes. classic bars to more modern, and then you can try these cocktails that were essentially invented in New Orleans, they're still making them. Right, right. Right. Well, Sazerac was was always my favorite of all the cocktails. And and there are arguments over where that comes from, but I think the most most convincing are from New Orleans and the fact that it was invented by somebody who was a pharmacist, but he actually made bitters on the side. Right. So no wonder my pharmacist is... um, a cocktail meister now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you know, um, Natalie, you, you start at the beginning, and you're so thorough in this book that it would uh, you'd have to be a real dummy not to be able to turn out these gorgeous cocktails like you, you say we're supposed to be doing. You get down to the yeah. basics. And one of my favorite yeah, basics... One of my favorite basics that you talk about, actually, is ice. I mean, until I was introduced to this cocktail world, I had no idea all these devices for producing perfect ice. Yeah, I mean, ice is something that has just gotten this craze over the last couple years. And, you know, it first started when bars started introducing you know, you're paying a lot of money for a cocktail, and they started, I mean, I'm assuming, I don't, I mean, I don't come from a bartender background, but some of that cost is the ice that they're using, because they're either purchasing clear ice, or they're making it, they're they're making a big cube, and they're, you can watch them carve it to order, and mm-hmm. so ice is something that's, like, come a long way, and you can make it at home, um, and it just makes your cocktail presentation even better than using, like, ice that comes out of your refrigerator or from the ice maker. Now, where, where did the idea come from to come up with these totally nutty names? Yeah, your names are fantastical. Well, you're you're not English. If, if you were English, I, I would be able to relate this to the fact that there's a whole series of music hall style jokes called an an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman went into a bar and they <laughs> and they did and they did something. Uh, what what yeah. I remember, the, the English and Irishman and Scotsman went into the bar, and one of them said, "How how big's a penguin?" Yeah. <laughs> and, and the bartender replied about so high, gesturing it. And so the guy said, oh, my God, I ran over a nun. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, well, that's not in the book, Robin. No that's, no, that's not in the book. No, <laughs> the, 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 there, are, there are amazing things in the book. What, the reason I brought it Thank up is I, I, I have your book open at a page called That's no, 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 that's totally, here it is. A pirate and a Spaniard <laughs> walk into a bar. Yeah, you like that one. I, I have to tell you from the naming point of view, 
I did not name any of these. That's all the Australian. That is James. Oh, um, that's okay. Okay. He okay. is a former bartender, but also, I will tell you, if you ask a lot of people, either you're really good at naming cocktails or you can't think of anything. And for me, because I feel like in, a platform like Instagram is so instant and people are scrolling, I like to get to the point. So I'll just, like, name a cocktail, like, this is a strawberry margarita. So people are <laughs> like, ooh, that's a strawberry margarita. But in an instance with this book, where you want the creativity to be fluid throughout, I thought that it was fun to name these cocktails something because there is some context behind each cocktail and being able to relate all of that back is, um, you know, part of the story. Once Upon a Time in Milano. Talk to us about that one. Oh, okay. Um in terms of the story or like the cocktail what's it, what, what, in what's it, what's it like in what's it like to drink cocktails in Milano? Well, okay, so I one thing that I talk about all the time on um Beautiful Booze because we incorporate it used to just be cocktails that I made, um and then we started incorporating our travels and how we how how we get some inspiration from traveling and visiting and giving our followers lists of bars and different places to go that we've tried. And I will tell you that Milan is a one of those places that a lot of people, if you talk to people in the U.S. and they're going to Italy, a lot of people don't go necessarily to Milan because you think of it as a big, like, business city. Yeah. but. When I went, I was blown away by their cocktail scene. I had no idea that they had such, like, a thriving, creative cocktail scene. And what I loved about Milan is you have Once Upon a Time in Milano is based off one of my favorite cocktails, which is called the Negroni Spagliato, which basically means the wrong Negroni. And it, there's a story about how the bartender <laughs> grabbed sparkling wine instead of gin and put that into the recipe and that bar is still open and it's called Barbasso. It's in Milan. It's one of those beautiful, classic, old school places. And well, there aren't that many that, of them. And, you know, it used to be you couldn't get like a cocktail. You ordered a martini and what you got was um, a martini vermouth, you know. Yeah, so that that was going to that bar and being able to drink that cocktail where it was invented inspired the version that we made in the book, which is very similar, but I prefer blanc vermouth instead of sweet vermouth, and that's, that was the change-up that we did in the book. And instead of just like a regular sparkling wine, we used the rosé sparkling wine. So we have a lot of inspiration from Barbasso. And, uh, you know, their family is still running that place. And it's just this classic must-visit place there. I'm going, I'm going to date it a little bit, and then I'm going to ask you a question. Because yeah. Anne, and, Anne, Anne and Peter both re- remember the era when if you – 
ordered a cocktail like like a dry martini, for example, they would they would make it for you and they would pour you a glass, but there would be enough for another martini in the shaker. So you yeah. really got two for the price of one. You remember that, sweetheart? No, I not forgot they, about they used, that. They used to they used to do that at the Carlton House on on Grand Street. <laughs> that was all all the all the going all the going home executives would have not not two. one but one plus one <laughs> before before driving home and crashing into a car. <laughs> but that but that tradition doesn't exist any longer. No. Yeah. I guess, I guess not. Otherwise, otherwise. You'd tell us about it. Well, I mean, there's definitely places in the U.S. that are very into their two-for-one happy hours. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's interesting. They they bring it to you whether you ask for it or not, which is really which is really interesting. And the and the yeah, Spaniards, I, the Spaniards with the with the gin and tonics as big as fish bowls. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a whole other thing. In, in Spain, our funniest thing was the the guy who was drinking. Um, what was it? I mean, they put a bottle. He, he was drinking. He was drinking. He was drinking Coke, but he had a gin bottle right next they, to that. They put the the gin bottle on the table, that was next to his Coke. And he and, and he helped. He odd. helped. It, he helped himself. We we ne- we never we never did find out how how they knew how much to charge him for what he consumed. Well, I noticed that in a lot of different countries, they do have this. People are used to going to these bars with their friends, and they do have, like, this bottle service where they buy, like, oh. the whole bottle. And then they bring you whatever mixer you may want to have um, oh, that's probably it, with we? that. Oh sure, it used, to be, yeah. used to be used to be like that. In, used to be like that in Kansas, sweetheart. When, yeah, we, right. when we first lived in Kansas, you you went into a bar and you paid for a setup, but you, but you poured your own drink into the setup. Yeah, that's probably how so, yeah. so, so, so so it was. I wondered first of all why what? was he drinking um, gin with Coke. <laughs> Oh yeah, well, that, that, you would we, be surprised. We, we 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 never we never resolved that one. We, we didn't we didn't have the we didn't have the bravery to ask him. So you, yeah, you, I mean, you have so much information, Natalie, in this book, uh, and and some things that nuances in the booze industry that um, you know people don't talk much about. I mean, one of the amazing things is this huge uh, evolution of rum, for example. And uh-huh. you happen to like dark rum, right? Yeah, I mean, I think how different spirits in the U.S. have been have become more popular. Like there was a big trend on people drinking bourbon whiskeys from the U.S., um, which was a big wave. And then all of a sudden, I think rum has become more popular because, and a lot of spirits, even if you think about tequila, um, these spirits that people traditionally like drank in college or had a bad experience with and they were drinking, um, you know, really cheap, cheap tequila or cheap rum. But now there's so many high quality 
spirits. It's just, it's almost like people are like, this doesn't even taste like what I thought rum tasted like. <laughs> That's for sure. I mean, I was so astounded when uh, when we got people sending us all these samples, and they sent us all these rum samples, and also the variety of places where they're they're making rum. I mean, not, not just yeah. the, Jamaica or you know where, wherever else, but I mean they're making it all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. even like. James and I, when I went to Australia with him, you know, there's places near where he's from where there's just all kinds of sugar cane. And so they're starting to make a lot more like domestic oh, rums wow. even over in Australia. Now, where is he from in Australia? That's the Queensland. Um, it's called the Gold Coast. Yeah, right, right. It's, it's on the... It's on, it's on the border of New South Wales and Queensland. Oh, nice, nice area. It's yeah. it's very it's very touristy. It's kind of like Atlantic City. It's somewhat overrated, but there but the sun shines, and the and the water's warm, and the beach is very attractive, and all that stuff. Yeah, Peter lived in New South Wales, and then um, the two of us lived in Geelong. Which is in Victoria. Um, okay. Yeah. So, the, uh, yeah. Our, our friend who had the macadamia plantation in in Byron Bay. Byron Bay is not too far okay. from the Gold Coast. You know, you know where yeah. I am now, right? Right. On, on, on the right hand side, about halfway up, as they say. And, you know, you you mentioned all these. Um, I mean, just referencing your book, I mean, you give all the instructions for your basic bar setup so that um, beginners can just jump right in and figure out what how to stock a bar uh, at home, and then the equipment, you know, what absolutely is essential. And then from there, your your flights of fantasy take off. My one question was about some of these uh, beautiful. I mean, they're they're actually stunning drinks, but I don't know how you actually drink them. I mean, there's so many flowers around. There. <laughs> yeah, there's one that I definitely gave like a flower crown to because yeah. I was in the mood. Um, so for me, it's it's almost like that creativity artwork. I feel as though like food. When you see something that looks really beautiful, you're more enticed to get it. And I will tell you, I don't know how many times I've been sitting in a bar and a bartender brings out some gorgeous-looking drink, and I see people stare at it, and then they go, I want that. No matter – they don't even know what's in it. Like, do you even like the spirit? But um, for for those, I don't – obviously, it's for presentation purposes. Like, I don't think – necessarily that someone at home is going to put 15 flowers on their drink, but I would like to inspire them maybe to add some kind of garnish just to make it feel like a special occasion or feel, you know, feel special, a special moment in life, which, you know, we don't have to just pop champagne when we're celebrating something. We can drink it all the time. Just like cocktails, we can drink these beautiful-looking cocktails every day to bring these beautiful moments to our life. You even have atomizers 
for I've got I've got, a, I've got a beauty right here, but then then I have something else I want to mention. This is called flashing like a firefly. Yeah, I, that was yeah. interesting. <laughs> and, and it and, and it's very flashy. But here's here's the one thing I have never seen before. So, so okay. this, this this is this is a, this is a win for for Natalie because I've never even dreamt of it. Never mind seen it before. And that's the the one the the cocktails that you have where you put hon- honey on the outside. Oh. And you stick yeah. flowers to the glass with the honey. Yeah. It looks yeah. like. It looks like. Yeah. Who, who who does I that think every it day? It looks like bugs. I don't like that at all. Well, you know what's interesting about that is that there's several different drinks, not necessarily that one, but like there's, I've been doing some demos during this time and I've been doing these Instagram lives to teach people stuff. And one thing that I got a lot of feedback on that people really love it's talking about even like your classic margarita, if you want salt on the rim. Usually, uh-huh. it's really easy. You just take your lime and you rim the glass, and then you put yeah. the glass into the salt. But, you know, a lot of people don't want the whole rim salted. They just want a little strip of salt. And oh. one way you can achieve that is take a little bit of honey and then and and put the honey I use the back of a spoon, and I just kind of make one movement of the glass, and it makes a little streak on the glass, and then you dip the salt into the honey, and it will just stay put. Like, it just, sometimes when you're rimming the glass with juice, it doesn't stay put, but if you're wanting something to stay on there, honey is a good alternative, and people are like, ooh, I always saw cocktails with these different um, designs with salt on there, and what, and they're like, I never understood how somebody did that, and I'm like, this is how you do it. Now you know, you know the old poem, of course. I eat my peas with honey. I've done it all my life. It makes the peas taste funny, but it keeps them on the knife. One <laughs> <laughs> yeah. my 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 boss when I work for for. For the BHP in Newcastle, New South Wales, he went. He went to London on some kind of trip or other, and he was having dinner at a hotel. And there was an Englishman, a couple of tables over, who was carefully eating his peas by mashing them into the potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> and Fred said he stayed and stayed and stayed because he he wanted to find out what would happen when the guy ate all the potatoes. That's so funny. <laughs> well, so and, yeah, go, well, I eat my, my peas with honey, and and I put them on a spread them on a mint julep, which yeah. which which is on page seventy eight, and it's called that's totally improbable. And I think, Natalie, <laughs> you're 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 <laughs> your your career is nothing but impossible. <laughs> You must be having a good time. Certainly better than writing grants for things. <laughs> so, so, so what's so what's the website again? Um, it's it's beautifulbooze.com. Uh, beautiful 
beautifulbooze.com. Remember that, listeners. Whenever you're, whenever you're looking for inspiration, whenever you're bored with your favorite cocktail, there are a couple of, couple of hundred here that will keep you busy for a good long time. Yeah. Lots of information, I think. I can't emphasize that enough. There's, I mean, the beautiful pictures, that's for sure, and, and tasty cocktail recipes, but, um, there's a lot of information, truly. And, and, as, and yeah. as James, as James Stevenson would say, fair dinkum. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not going to translate that for listeners. You, you have to, you want to know what it means. You have to look it up. Yeah. <laughs> Again, Natalie Migliorini and James Stevenson, and the book is called Beautiful Booze. And it certainly is a beautiful book, too, Natalie. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a delight. Next stop, for those of you who really like to have food with your booze, uh, we have a combination there. We're talking to Nick Spencer, a Spencer Foods and Spirits in company. And um, it's sauces, spirited sauces. Who knew? Well, oh, we're, we're going to have fun radio. today. What are you doing? I'm now, I said I'd introduce it. But I have to start out, listeners, please try to listen very closely because you're going to be talking with, you're listening to two Yorkshiremen talk. <laughs> and it, it's going to be on me. Um, but Peter's going to ask the first question then. Well, actually, neither one of us speaks Yorkshire all that well anymore. <laughs> my, my, my excuse is that I've been out to the United Kingdom since 1966. Uh, and yeah, uh, when, when, did, when did you come over, Neil Spencer? Uh, Nick. Nick Spencer. Nick. Yeah. Nick, Nick. Nick Spencer. Nick Spencer. Yeah. I, uh, I moved over here in 2007. I had been working in and living in London and met my now wife in, in London and um, I initially transferred with uh, my corporate job from London to, to New York. What, now, had you been in the food industry before? So, uh, oddly, I had grown up in the food world. My grandfather had had stalls in Leeds Market and branched oh. out into into mushroom farming, uh, which was what my father did. And then my stepfather was in refrigerated transportation. So I'd been in and around it. And then uh-huh. when I I joined, um, I trained in architecture and uh, joined Ernst & Young in their advisory services group and actually worked pretty extensively with Unilever when I was in the UK. Uh-huh. Um, so it had always been something that I'd wanted to do, but it was, it was like really moving to the States as the catalyst because uh, when I got here, it was obviously right before the recession, and um, we had just got married, Connie and I, in 2009, and we decided to move to Chicago so that we could start our family, and at that time we didn't want to have to go searching for jobs in the Chicago market so we both 
started our own entrepreneurial ventures in 2009 and I chose mainly because I was missing them but also because you have to start somewhere and the easier you make things the better. I chose to start a British brand called Jolly Posh making uh, British sausages and bacon which I was obviously missing from back yeah, home. Right. Yeah, our, our grandchildren, when they went to England for the first time, couldn't believe how magnificent the bacon there was. <laughs> and you would miss it, yes. And, it's different, and the, and, nice. Yeah. And the only, the only sausage I like to buy on Whole Foods is, is English, is bangers, Irish bangers. They don't make them very often, which is really very irritating. But, but you have... You have more than one business, and let, let's kind of classify how they're different. Yeah, so Jolly Posh changed over the years. It started as a wholesale business and grew into um, two grocery stores and restaurant spaces, which um, and an online store, and that then uh, all came to a head in 2016, which was a very tricky year. And for the last several years, I have been uh, picking up the kind of the wholesale business of Jolly Posh and and focusing on that and and growing it. About 18 months ago, I uh, set about looking back at what had happened uh, in the context of the businesses and starting families and moving out to the suburbs and all these different. Things and I was very, um, I was very determined to look at what had gone well and what hadn't gone well, what the successes and the failures had been, and make sure that I applied them in a direction going forward. And uh, that analysis led to the creation of Spirit and Co, uh, which is a brand new line that we have just launched this year in front of of distinctive sauces made with premium liquor. Now, what gave you that idea? I mean, you said you're the first to do that. I mean, what, what was the hook here? Why did you think this was necessary, and who was your market, and why did you think it was a good thing to do? Well, uh, I had seen two very pronounced development. The, the first has been the growth in craft of premium liquor, which as a market has gone bonkers. And the second was the rise in uh, specialty food with the uh, kind of trend towards all natural and health and wellness as prominent features of um, now a lot of mainstream products. And what happens in the kind of source space, particularly, is you get a little bit of crossover, but it's not really owned. So you might get a kind of hot sauce company that will make five or six different hot sauces, and one will have a liquor or possibly tequila or Mexican beer or that kind of thing. In. And you might get a salsa business that will have a line of you know, five, six, ten, however many salsas, and one or two of them might have craft liquor. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if 
our brand was centered on the whole notion of putting uh, liquor into food and using that as our focus. So we would have one hot sauce, and this is what we have. We have a hot sauce with liquor, we have a barbecue sauce with liquor, a ketchup with liquor, a mustard with liquor, and a steak sauce with liquor. And a lot of that had actually come about because in our in my grocery days at Johnny Posh and running the restaurants, I'd seen the kind of attractiveness and the the appeal to uh, having liquor, like not even premium liquor, just any liquor in products is always very, very um, appealing to the consumer. So I did big shows in Chicago, like the one of a uh, one of a kind show in the merchandise mart for Christmas. And I took an imported brandy butter there that we we just it sold very very quickly at a very nice price point in terms of margins. And uh, I imported things like HP Guinness, which was like a limited time um, offer. HP being a British source, but we retailed it in our grocery store, and it was very our target market. We made meat pies with red wine in or beer. Yeah, right. And, uh, and carried sham- uh, and carried marmalades that had champagne in. Uh, we had uh, fudges made with Scotch whiskey, and so on and so forth. And then, in conjunction, I'd also run hundreds and hundreds of farmers markets uh, in and around Chicago, and seen this kind of American love for condiments uh, for putting sauces on top of products food and uh, I'd had for a while that I was going to expand Jolly Posh with with a line of condiments and when my concept developed in a robust sense uh, and I knew what I was looking to accomplish I realised it didn't really fit within the confines of Jolly Posh, like this isn't an expat product, it's not for my existing customers, um, it's a much more American, broader American specialty food um, brand and, uh, and, and, and market position, and that was really what led to the development of Spirit & Co as its own brand. Now, the, the, the most interesting thing about about the spirit sources branding, if you like, is the bottles, or oh, the yeah, jars, whatever, whatever you might call them, because they they look for all the world like liquor flasks. And I, and I'm wondering where you got where you got the idea, because if if you go back into the bar business, bar, bar, bartenders are, are particularly concerned about the, the shape and feel, if you like, and the appearance of the bottles behind them in the bar and you've done the same thing with barbecue sauce yeah and with barbecue you're other, sauce you're other sauce sauce and ketchup. yeah so it, it's it, uh, it's obviously it's, it's it's very intentional I wanted to um, portray the um, notion that this was a combination of food and liquor in all components of the brand from from its name, through our purpose, through the flavours, through the bottling, through to the flavour. 
and that's what you'll experience in, in interfacing with Spurs and Co. Is you get that concept very loud and clear. The extent to which actually my children, even though the, the, the alcohol is largely cooked out during the process, my children don't tend towards my products for their meal occasions because because of the potting, because they're glass, because they're small, because they know about the brand and the story. And, you know, so they're asking me for their regular ketchups and mustards. And ultimately, that's entirely the point because this is, this is like a way of, and if I look to what we're looking to accomplish, like the whole point of Spirit and Co. is to, and we set our purpose as, is about raising your spirits. It's about coming together and elevating everyday dining and having an experience that you couldn't have without our company being there. And so if you look at some of our sauce flavors, like we do a vodka and Italian tomato ketchup. So that's, we bring in tomatoes, um, San Marzano tomatoes from Italy that we use in our ketchup. Um, we have a vodka that comes from Kentucky. It's American, American made and distilled. And then our ketchup, like most of our products, will hit a lot of the health and wellness angles. Like it doesn't have high fructose corn syrup in it. We don't use any artificial preservatives. It's gluten-free. It's all natural. It's it's vegan, and and it's allergen-free. Sorry, the one I went for first, and I'll. Planning on using it again on chicken again tonight is the uh, is the one that has bourbon in it. <laughs> I bourbon and smoky bacon barbecue sauce. That's, that's it. it. That's yeah, it. that's the one. He's going to yeah. put it on chicken thighs. Yeah, that'll be delicious. So that is a classic American barbecue sauce. It's a little bit sweet. It's a little bit smoky, um, and yeah, it's it's fantastic either just directly on chicken or uh, I've been using it as a marinade quite a lot on uh, ribs and the like as well and then baking them in the oven. Now, you say that the alcohol really cooks off like when you use alcohol for cooking, huh? Yeah, so our, our process for the sauces is they're made in small batches and the sauces are bought to simmer and cooked and the entire process takes over two hours and so during that time the portion of the sauce that is alcohol is brought to boil and the majority of the alcohol is cooked out. So I can have my leftover chicken thigh with the sauce for breakfast, right? <laughs> you, it, that's exactly right, yeah. And <laughs> you, you, the, the function of the cooking process is, is it really enhances the alcohol enhances the flavor of the sauce. Um, uh, right, right. Which right. is nice. But yes, it's, it, it's certainly not there for its alcoholic content, but uh, you, would have to, you would have to consume a tremendous amount of mustard or, or, or ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know that we're quite ready to consume that much. Now, you debuted this sauce through the Specialty Food um, Association, right? That's right, yes. Yeah, and I mean, what a loss that we didn't have the actual expo this year. 
because um, I mean, so many people just depended on that for exposure. Um, but we've been trying to kind of make up for that by focusing on products. Um, what was the reaction? Did, have you had any reaction yet? Yeah, so we are in uh, pre-sale at the moment uh, in the extent that um, our, um, we're building up uh, a list of uh, mainly kind of smaller, more boutique, more specialty retailers that will be carrying our products. And um, so the SFA show was useful for that. And we're working those leads. And as we speak today, we have a handful of customers that have committed to bringing on our line. Um, and that is, I'm very positive that that is going to grow fairly rapidly um, down the line as we go into the Christmas market. Great. So, so, you're, so you're expecting to place quite a lot of flasks of your sauce in people's Christmas stockings? <laughs> yeah, gifting's definitely a thing. Yeah, so we've got a few um, kind of online partners that we're working with. Well, actually, I think, Peter, I'm honestly, I think most of that is going to start happening in uh, the first quarter of next year. But we will be available. We will be available on our own website at, at spiritsources.com, and um, that will be in advance of uh, the holiday season. Yeah, so that that goes live at the end of October. Great. Well, it's nice. It's nice to hear another success story for 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 a guy from Yorkshire who just happened to, <laughs> who, who just happened to get tangled with an American woman whose wiles he could not resist. <laughs> yes, sir. So so Anne says hi to your Connie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I was I, I was out there ahead of you, blazing the trail. There you go. There you go. Well, we wish we wish you great success with with uh, both both of your ventures, and uh, we'll think of you every time we buckle up to to one of the sources in the flasks. Yeah, uh, my concern is the flasks are so wonderful. Um, are we gonna? have to keep them and, and add to our household clutter. <laughs> I mean, they're so, they're so unique and wonderful. Maybe we could reuse them with something. Yeah, repurpose them. I wonder what yeah. for. There you go. I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm going to let our listeners in on a secret. You know how people give, people can pervert first names of people according to what they say, and uh, you're Nicholas, and in Yorkshire you would have been known as Tinbum. What? Tinbum, Nicholas. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Good. <laughs> they may, they Good. may not still do that, I don't know, it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> what would yours be, Peter, do you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was called Haggis, which I absolutely hated. It was Haggis. For some, for some reason, somebody connected me up with the whatever you call it that they make in Scotland. Haggis. Yeah. 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 Well, just as, as an aside, uh, I he travelled with this egg cup with Beatrix Potter, 
and uh, brought it up from England even to Australia. And uh, so I started calling him Rabbit. Peter Rabbit, you get. You should try explaining that in Italy, France, or Spain, because I don't have one place is one for rabbit, the other place is, um, well, I don't remember, but, but they don't have Peter Rabbits in those countries. <laughs> Why is your husband called Rabbit? Yeah. And we, better, we better not speak too loud, otherwise the state of Beatrix Potter might sue us. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much for joining us on the menu today, and uh, we, we, we wish you very well, and continued success and much happiness. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Nice meeting you. Thank you. Nick, we're going to sign off now.